0: Hi everybody, JP here with a quick word about what we're kicking off with today's episode. Dr. Wang and I discuss our goals and the purpose of this mini-series in the episode proper, so I'm going to let that speak for itself. But what I do want to say to you, our listeners, is that if you have a story that you want to share with us and share with our audience, please reach out to us at neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com and let us know if you want to come on the show and tell us about a case that you can't forget. Again, that's neurosurgerypodcast at gmail.com. Write to us if you want to come on the show and share your story. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Today, we are kicking off another mini-series that we're embarking on with the show, and this is something that Dr. Wang and I have been talking about doing for almost a year now. I think many of us have heard a famous quote from a French surgeon, René Lariche: every surgeon carries within himself a small cemetery, where from time to time he goes to pray, a place of bitterness and regret where he must look for an explanation for his failures. And it's that exact philosophy that prompts our next series with the Neurosurgery Podcast, which we're calling The Case I Can't Forget. Um, The idea here is to talk to surgeons from all walks of life, all levels of training, all areas of the globe, to think back into their professional history about that one patient, that one case that really shaped their development as a neurosurgeon. And I think, Dr. Wang, you'll agree that in a field like neurosurgery, we all have those stories.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that... um... For those of us who are listening to this, who are not surgeons or doctors, it may strike you as a bit um, odd that the true stories are stranger than fiction. And what I mean by that is that our interface with the world is so unusual that every week brings about real stories about humanity, about uh, depravity, about science, and all the amazing things and some quite horrific that happened to us. Um, and so I think, JP, this is, this is your idea, I know. And this is going to delve into some very personal spaces as we bring guests on. And uh, I'm very excited. I'm very excited about this process. I think it will let the initiated uh, get deeper into what this podcast was really made for.
0: Well, that's the idea exactly. Particularly, um, you know, something we often do and, and we often cherish is the passing on of wisdom. And that wisdom is so precious and so difficultly earned by people later in their career and more senior. And so, to attempt to pass on those experiences, which of course are invaluable, and every young surgeon, as he or she is coming up, must and has to face those experiences to develop themselves. But maybe as they're going along the road by sharing these stories, they can be a little bit better informed, a little bit better for those moments of crisis those moments within the punctuated equilibrium of their professional development to face the crisis successfully. And even if unsuccessful, be better prepared to learn from it, to bounce back and to go back out into the field to face the next day.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I just started today, JP, watching this series that was, uh, it aired initially like in 2013 or 14, it's called the Nick, K-N-I-C-K. Mm. Yeah. Have you seen it?
0: I haven't seen it. I, I, uh, I saw a lot of advertisements for it,
1: and it's been highly recommended by my friends. Yeah, I resisted watching it initially because I, I knew that it was full of sort of pseudo-history. Right. But the idea, just for those of you who haven't seen it, it's, it stars Clive Owen, who's an amazing British actor. And Clive Owen plays this uh, fictional doctor who's supposed to be patterned after, I think, William Halstead. Right. He's yeah. got a
0: drug problem. He's hardcore, type A, constantly going, going, going.
1: Yeah, exactly. And 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 you start to get a, a sense of why he is the way he is. And in, in the in the in the pilot, in the first uh, show of the two season series, he's with his partner. Uh, and they're of course back then they were just surgeons, right? That there were surgeons that did everything, right? And his senior surgeon, who's the chief of surgery at this actual it's a real hospital, then it's called the Knickerbock or something like that. It's closed now, in New York City, and this is at the turn of the last century, so they barely had electricity. Uh, they 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 lose a patient and this, this surgeon kills himself. He takes his own life. Mm. And then you see, of course, Clive Owen doing the drugs, the cocaine, the heroin, all this. And we do know that Halstead actually did take uh take, if you will, privilege in having access to these, these mind-altering drugs, right? That's a fact, isn't it? Right? Oh yes. Yeah. So I think you get a, a little bit of insight, although to most people who don't know anything about surgeons, it just seems horrific. Um, it seems like they're just crazy madmen uh, that are just experimenting with people with patients. Um, but the reality is that there's a journey there, and I think that we all walk that journey. and JP, I mean, you're you're in a thick of training. You're in the middle of all this now, right?
0: Absolutely. And you know i'm I'm just starting to get my feet towards the deep end of the water where uh, you know I have less and less uh, protective floating devices and and I'm seeing more of this darker side of medicine, darker side of neurosurgery. And starting to brush elbows with these experiences that I can tell shape the attendings and the senior people training me. You know, it's a running joke among junior residents that every time an attending says, hey, did you check for this or, oh, you know, it it looks like this obvious thing, but it could be that. What they're really telling you is that I had this crazy case before and you would not believe what it was. And now I think about it every single time because I got burned.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and just to, to bring our newer audience back to this, I mean, I know you and I have had sort of had this idea of this podcast for quite a number of years. but I think the real catalyst was the Dr. Death podcast about Christopher Dunch. Right. And I will draw our, our listeners' attention back to episode 25 with Stephen Giannata. And we had waited to release, 25 was so long ago but for us, we waited a long time to release that episode because we wanted to prime our audience and, and get people ready for the concept that yeah, that happens out there. And our podcast was sort of to be the antithesis of the discussion of Dr. Death, right? So see people think we're talking about things that seem horrific or wrongheaded. I, I would direct you back to what JP said, which is that these are the lessons that steer us away from wrongheaded misadventures or criminal activity.
0: Exactly. I, I think the guiding philosophy of this series and the reason to explore these stories is to prevent the production of another Dr. Death and to really show the world and and our listeners how you should respond to the inevitable and maybe avoidable, but sometimes unavoidable catastrophes that we face in our discipline. So with that, Dr. Wang, uh, we've put you on the hot seat to kick this series off. And we're going to ask you to look back into your professional past and share with us a story of one of these cases, one of these patients who still informs your decision-making, informs your Practices and your philosophy as you approach and practice neurosurgery every day. So, maybe you could set the stage for us. Let us know the year, the, your professional level, where this happened. Bring us back to when the story occurred.
1: Yeah. So, it, it's hard to pick, you know, one, one patient story because there's so many. I'm, a, I'm 20 years in practice. Um, I um, am 7,000 plus surgeries in, probably seen about 50, 60,000 patients in clinic. Um, and It's hard because every patient is unique. And there is, though, a story that that struck me early on, JP, when I was about your age. Um, I was at USC at the county hospital, the the L.A. County General Hospital, which is now closed because they built a new hospital. But this county hospital was uh, the largest hospital in the Western Hemisphere and very famous. Um, When they pan on General Hospital to the commercial, that's the hospital they show, the old county hospital. And I was still dating my wife, Amy, at the time. And I'll never forget this case because I was a junior resident, a PGY-2, which is the crucible year, right? Because in your intern year, you're an intern. You're not really responsible for anything. The second year is when you really become a neurosurgeon in training. Uh, Udi Mendel was my chief. I was early on in my second year. And uh, at that time, it was quite customary for there to be multiple emergencies going on at once. There, That was at the tail end of the... Uh, Los Angeles gang wars, uh, where Mike Levy wrote uh, his series of "5,000 Gunshot Wounds to the Head." It was a very different time, um, and there was a case where um, we were called to the emergency room, and it's kind of a long story, JP. So feel free to jump in at any point because there are many lessons in the story. Mm-hmm. For uh, a young lady, and she was about 19 years old, with an open depressed skull fracture, and so uh, my chief Udi Mendel went down there because I was busy. And it was one of the most horrific things you could see. So here's a a beautiful young lady, thin, looked like she was well-to-do, laying in this gurney, having a psychotic episode with an open-depressed skull fracture. And 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 it was not an acute open-depressed fracture. I'm sorry, go ahead.
0: If I could, just to kind of get a a sense and a feel to put ourselves in your shoes, do you recall what time of day this was?
1: Oh, yeah. This was not in the middle of the night. This was in the evening. And it was in the uh, in the trauma bay at USC. There's three spots for trauma. And so you can run three traumas at once as a general surgeon. And she was in the middle bay. And uh, her head was open, but it was not freshly opened. It had been open for weeks. And there was, a, a, I want to call it a sea of maggots. And if you want to, if you've ever seen maggots before, Sometimes you see so many of them, it looks kind of like rice and it looks like there's, it's just kind of moving. And there were maggots everywhere. And so my chief Udi was, who's now at Yale, he's the new spine director at Yale. So congratulations, Udi. The maggots were just falling onto the floor by the hundreds and squirming. And, you know, maggots are like, they're not that active until you get them excited. And when they get excited, then they really get, they start to move a lot more. And they were going all over the place in his shoes and whatnot. He was trying to clean out the head and you could see her brain. Okay. Now that's, that's not the story. That's not the real story. (laughs) What happened was that of course he took that patient after cleaning her out to the, to the operating room and we cleaned out her skull fracture and, um, and, and left it open because there was, it was just, it had been open for so long. Right. And so she got admitted to the ICU and she had a big dressing on her head and she was a, what they call Jane Doe, right? Nobody knew who she was. Right. Mm Right. And she was, she was somewhat incoherent. And the idea being that um, she was basically in a a psychotic state. Um, She, she really was not making any sense. Although you could tell that this, this young lady was well to do, like she came from, from means, which was weird, right? Because you're used to seeing homeless people like that. And it's not to, to devalue any, you know, it's not to say she was being paid more attention because of that, but it just seemed out of place.
0: Right. And it's something I think to underscore for some of our listeners that don't practice medicine or practice neurosurgery or a discipline that deals with emergencies and acute traumas like this, or for some of our younger listeners in the field, it is so unbearably common that in the setting of emergencies, identity is just wiped away. That oftentimes, particularly if a patient's transferred or if you're in the hospital waiting on call, you just get a phone call to come see a person. You're often given an approximate age, a sex, and a pathology. And typically with an acute emergency that you're trying to treat, that's all you have to go on for days. Um, I I wonder, do you recall when you got the page or you got the phone call, how did the trauma bay describe this case to you?
1: They just said, you need to get down here because it was so unusual. Right. Right. And so, you know, you're absolutely right, JP. And this is, I don't want to get too political, but this is why I think a lot of neurosurgeons push back so hard against or push back against the Affordable Care Act, not because you're on the right or left, but because we just take care of everybody. We don't look at people and go, "Oh well, that person's a homeless person or that person is a a poor person or a certain ethnic identity, so we're not going to take care of them. We just take care of people. And, and it's different from being like a pediatrician in an office where you get a phone call and you decide whether they get insurance off to come see you, right? I mean, it is it is different for us. Right. And and so anyway, so so she gets admitted to ICU and uh, the social worker and psychiatry service get involved, of course. And the psychiatrists come to see her and they're like, oh, this person clearly clearly has a psychotic break, but you also need to know that she's anorexic. Like this is something that we had not picked up on. Mm. They're like, she's clearly an anorexic patient, right? Because they, they look for stuff like that, right? Right. So I was like, "Really? How do you know that?" And so the social worker came in, and the social worker actually got her to start talking. The speech pathologist and my wife even saw her as an occupational therapist, and they're much better. They have more time. They're 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 better at getting people to talk than we are, right? Right. And it turns out that what had happened to this young lady was that she was from the San Francisco Bay Area, and she was from a very well-to-do. A family and she was actually a ballerina in a in some kind of a ballet school and she had a schizophrenic break, which happens in at that time in 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 age, like 19, 20, 21, right? That's when it happens. Right. And she took a bus ride down to Los Angeles, which is not uncommon to go from San Francisco to LA, and was basically on the streets. And she was beating her head against, you know, the side of buildings, okay, and gave herself this open depressed skull fracture. Now, what happened next, of course, was while she's sleeping or whatever, flies would lay eggs into this wound because they're attracted to that, right? And then the maggots, which actually clean tissue, (laughs) were born of that, right? So she had been in Los Angeles for almost a month by by the time this happened, right? So what happens next is the social workers start to do a mad search for the identity of this young woman right? They're going to find out who this person is, find her family and, and contact them, right? That's the normal course of events. And you probably have this in Chicago a lot, right? These Jane Does or John Does that nobody knows who they are, right? At Cook County, you still see them, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what happened was, well, we had that. So we were only concerned about rounding on her and taking care of the medical side. So we're like, well, we got to close this open depressed skull fracture. So we'll call plastic surgery in, right? So the plastic surgeons come in and none of this story is exaggerated. Anybody, Udi, can verify it. My wife can verify it. The other residents at USC, people are going to say, you're making this stuff. You're exaggerating. It's like Grey's Anatomy. This is not exaggeration. The plastic surgeons come in to see her. And they say, listen, this is really, really complicated. We don't have enough tissue because everything's retracted. The galea, as you know, retracts, right? Right. And so the skull is pulled back on itself. So you have this gaping wound. So what we need to do is put in tissue expanders and turn a flap like a, like a flap from her latissimus dorsi and roll it up underneath the skin, like a a pedicled vascular flap and put it on top of her head. Right. Okay. Have you ever seen anything like this?
0: I've seen a few flap rotations. I've seen even
1: fewer free
0: flaps, but, um, I, you know, obviously nothing in a setting like this.
1: Okay. So. She goes through several surgeries, but the first surgery is the one where they first bring the, the flap up, which is a piece of her latissimus dorsi onto her head and they sew it onto her head. Right. Okay. Now, of course, her head is bandaged. And the first time we we undid the bandages to check the plastic, and the plastic surgeons are using a little ultrasound probe to check the vascular supply, right? Mm-hmm. It is crazy looking because it's like someone stuck a piece of meat, which it literally is, a muscle, on top of her head. Right, And she has no hair, right? Because the head's been shaved, right? And so you're looking at a person looks like a cancer patient has no hair. So you expect the head to basically be pretty much round and symmetrical, right? right? But it doesn't look anything like that. There's a piece of meat sticking up out of her head, but it's covered by skin. So it's like this fleshy protuberance, okay? Absolutely horrific looking. Right. And I remember saying to the plastic surgery fellow, I'm like, because he was a friend of mine, like, dude, that looks terrific. You guys are plastic surgeons. Come on. (laughs) And he said to me, no, 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 no. Don't worry about this. Um, What we would rather have is more tissue than less. Right. We're going to let the tissue heal. And like most plastic surgeons, they're going to take her back in successive operations to restyle it. So it's going to look normal and it's going to be well healed, et cetera, et cetera. right?" Right. Sounds very rational. Right. Right. So she's about two and a half weeks into her hospitalization And they locate her family. So the social worker finds her. I think it was Loc Tran was the social worker then. Finds her family, which was amazing that they had found her. And they're coming down to see her. Now, remember that this is the LA County General Hospital. The ICU is eight beds in one room, right? This is the old days, right? So it's not like everybody's got their private room and it's not all fancy. All the beds are out there, right? right? And all the families are visiting at the same time. And the family walks in and, you know, I know that the Bay Area is now known for opulence and affluence, um, but there's a certain look of the people that are from the Bay Area, right? And it's not the geek look. There's a certain sort of like a refined West Coast look. And the father and mother come into the ICU and they're, I mean, I was poor as a resident, so I recognized immediately they had money. So they walked in, right? And they saw, of course, they recognized their daughter they saw her and they just turned around and walked back out. God. And here I'm thinking that, you know, this whole history of the anorexia and of course all the pressure to be the ballerina and not, I'm not indicting her parents. I mean, I'm a parent myself. It's really, it's, it's not an easy thing to be a, a good parent, but it was clearly a moment of, of shock, horror, and judgment. Yeah. Of this girl. Right. Um, and eventually you know, she healed. She was on our service for a while. She had multiple surgeries on her head and eventually was discharged uh, to a psych facility from, from our hospital. Wow. And, you know, that story struck me on, on a lot of levels because as a neurosurgeon, I had gotten so into the idea of like, look, we're saving lives. It's very dramatic. You know, people are dying, people are living. And I really never paid much attention to the social elements of things other than, you know, if someone was gangbanging and killed and how many people they killed or how many people they tried to kill, this was like a big departure for me, really opened my eyes as to, you know, the, the psychosocial elements of, of people's lives.
0: Right. You know, obviously I don't know the Dr. Wang of, of those times when you were in training, I know the Dr. Wang of today and I know that you're a very contemplative, reflective physician and that you think deeply about the decisions you make, the people you encounter, the care that you give. I wonder, at the time when you were in training, you know, in the thick of it, as you said, at the front lines, did you have time to really process and reflect on that experience and what you had seen? Or did this kind of simmer um, in your consciousness over the years? and, And did you just keep returning to it and thinking more and more?
1: You know, that's a good question, JP, because I think that we have our own our own visions of our past change. Right. As we change. And, you know, during the thick of second year at most places, you're so tired that you don't really get the opportunity to respond emotionally the way you probably would if you were better rested, Um, which, in my father's opinion, is a good thing because you might just quit. Right. Right. But this case was unique because it did stop me in my tracks, yeah. and it stopped everybody in their tracks. I remember the ICU nurses. I remember Udi Mendel, uh, my co-resident Charles Lou. This was a this is a big deal because it sort of challenged many of our notions about um, society, how we interface, uh, gave me new respect for social workers, what they what they have to do, um, and how little they're paid to do it. And it, it showed me the very, very fine line between um, sanity and insanity. Mm. And, and maybe because I was interested in functional at the time, functional neurosurgery, that very, very fine line when uh, a young person has like a, a, a schizophrenic break. Schizophrenic is probably the wrong word to use. It's probably a schizoid break. There's probably better terms for it um, that happen um, you know, when they try a drug for the first time or something like that. Um, it, it shows the fragility of, of our mind, not not the brain, but the mind.
0: Right. And, and you know, the, the interesting thing about this story, but really any human story, and, and in particular, why I wanted to structure this series around stories and approaching these experiences as a story is because a story is built of characters and an empathetic human can take the mindset or you can imagine yourself in the role of any character in this little drama you just told us about. And so I imagine that at the time you, you were the role of the resident. You could see yourself in the role of that patient. This sounds like at least tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds like part of this eye opening experience for you was realizing things like this can happen to anyone. The mind can break and fail you. But now, as you said, further down the line, being a parent, you can imagine the mindset or try to put yourself in the position of those parents. How do you think, as you've thought about this case, thought about this story over the years, how has your perspective on the story and how has your perspective on the story changed and who do you most relate to now looking back on it?
1: You know, that's a really good question because at the time I was very disgusted with the parents, right? Mm. But and they did come back around, but the reality is, is that now I'm a parent, right? So it's, it's the shoes on the other foot. And I think in terms of conscious behavior, I think what it does for me is, you know, I always tell my kids, like, I don't want them to even try drugs. I know a lot of parents are like, oh yeah, try it when you're young as opposed to when you're old. But I think actually that we've learned that the human brain doesn't fully mature till you're about 28. Mm -hmm. And there's this push to not let anybody vote until they're, I know it's controversial to say this, but I was at a neurosurgery conference where they said nobody under 28 should be allowed to vote because their brains aren't even aligned properly with the world. And I'm not saying that's a reality that they shouldn't vote, but there's a point that our brains are developing far beyond 18. And so I've told my kids and I hope they're listening to me or they will listen to me that they shouldn't try any drugs. I don't care how benign they think they are uh, until they're older. Um, It's just not a good idea. But I think when I'm when I'm looking back on this particular incident, it really um, it did a couple things. Number one, as I look back on my former chiefs, Udi Mendel and Sean Levine, it demonstrated the tremendous leadership they took. In other words, they they threw themselves in a junior position frequently to, to make life possible and and to take care of humans. A lot of people don't do that. So I'm grateful to them for teaching me by example. Um I think – I sometimes wonder where this girl is now. She's probably – she may not be alive anymore. Yeah. Um, but I, I remember seeing the psychiatrists and plastic surgeons coming to see her. And it was really the first case I'd really been involved in where there was – I don't want to call it a team approach because it's not like we had a concerted team approach. But where different services rallied together to help somebody. Right. Um, and, and this is a, sort of a judgment of our system. I think, I, I wonder if they would have done the same if it was just a homeless schizophrenic patient, right? Like, yeah, I wonder about that. I, I have to, I have to be not blind to my own blind spots. Um, you know, there, there's are so many elements of, of when I think about, well, if I had done this differently, could I have done something differently? Um, and I wonder about that. Like, I, I think about some of the great functional neurosurgeons we've interviewed, like, would they be people that would look at this case differently, right? That they would have a different sense of what's going on in this human's mind than like me as a spine surgeon, right?
0: Right. But, you know, as you say, and, you know, you chose, you selected this story to come on and discuss today as something that really shaped you. And I think that there is something about you and your approach to neurosurgery, maybe even your approach to life, that really does resonate with a story like this. If you look at your career, you, you trained in the thick of it, in the front lines, in the foxholes, as you said, uh, describing the environment and what it was like, where and when you trained. And then with the career you've had after that, there are many places you could have chosen to build your practice and establish yourself and to stay in practice. And you chose a place that's a major level one trauma center with a thriving county hospital that is a beacon and a rallying point for underserved, underprivileged people from a huge geographic region. So clearly something about this experience and experiences like it resonated with you, and I, I think theres it's almost like a nature-nurture, some kind of push-and-pull thing where these experiences around you, but then something inside yourself has kind of together shaped the surgeon that you've become, Um, in that mindset, thinking about putting yourself there in Miami, putting yourself there with Ryder Trauma and Jackson Memorial and this sea of underserved patients that come to you and in an emergency get you in the middle of the night to take care of them, when you think about this girl and you think about the story you've just told us, does that inform, does that impact What does that do when you get the call in the middle of the night with, hey, you're never going to believe what just rolled in?
1: Yeah, you know, JP, that's a really interesting and very deep question that I don't really have the answer to, except that I would say that I've been privileged to work in these environments because it's allowed me to maintain a certain um, maybe idealized sense of moral clarity. Mm. And going back to this Dr. Death issue, You know, as I talk to young people, maybe residents or people in training or fellows, I worry about that because I think that we went into this field for a reason. And there's a certain excitement and addiction to it that can serve good. In other words, Tom Brady's addiction to, you know, his diet probably helps him be a better football player. And my addiction to our field and what it represents hopefully makes me a better and more ethical surgeon. And I think that, you know, the, the, the thing that makes life never boring, people always say, well, are you ever going to burn out? And the answer is no, I don't think I'm ever going to burn out unless the system changes is just what you said, which is that we get to take care of people in need. And I, I go to, I give grand rounds a lot. I gave uh, grand rounds at, uh, I think, 13 places in 2021, 13 universities. And I always say that if all I took care of was infection, trauma, and tumors, I'd be the happiest spine surgeon in the world. Mm-hmm. And I still feel that way. Not that I don't like the other stuff. It's just that those people really need us. They really, really, really need what we have to offer. Um, so you know, there is a certain moral clarity in that kind of a practice. And um, I, I'm sure as you as you talk and I talk to other neurosurgeons, that becomes quite apparent. Not that there's anything wrong with dealing with insured private patients. It's just that there's something very dramatic about the extremes of pathology, the giant meningioma, the spinal fracture dislocation, right? Right. The, uh, the, you know, the, the, the intraoperatively ruptured aneurysm, right? There's something very, very compelling. And I think it's part of why almost everybody that went into neurosurgery went into neurosurgery.
0: Right. And you know, I, I of course agree with you. I'm also attracted to neurotrauma. I, I enjoy thinking about it, treating it. And I think for that reason, And I I noticed you return to that phrase, the moral clarity, Um, and and maybe to put a bow on this story, put a bow on this conversation, I want to shift gears slightly and think about the idea of moral clarity, because in an emergency case, in a trauma case, in the case you describe, there is no question that something must be done. The puzzle, the decision then, is what to do. Right. But there is no question that something must be done. That's that moral clarity. Here is a problem that we must attempt to solve. Taking that lesson, taking that moral clarity that you learn in the setting of emergencies, that you learn in the setting of trauma. When you're in clinic with an elective case where maybe it's not so cut and dry that something must be done right now, where do you reach and what do you find to help you decide is it time to act? Should something be done now before you start thinking about what to do?
1: Yeah, that's an interesting comment and question, JP. I think, you know, when you look at, at errors, uh, mistakes, you can think of them in two categories. One is uh, errors of commission and errors of omission, right? So for us, that usually divides along operative intervention, right? So you should have operated, but you didn't, or you shouldn't have operated, but you did, right? Mm. And I think that you can be wrong a lot. Like we we are often wrong in retrospect in the sense that we took a fork in the road and we wish that we had taken a different fork, even if we don't know if that would have been better or right. But regret is a very powerful emotion. So what I like to do, and I tell my patients this in clinic, is I, I um, I believe in philosophical consistency. And what I mean by that is, you know, last uh, week, four last, I operated on a Jehovah's Witness, and it was an elective surgery, and it was a big surgery, and the patient would not accept blood, and the point of the matter is, is that's that patient's choice, right? So how we frame the decisions around those parameters is important. So I think that as humans, as doctors, as surgeons. We have to be philosophically consistent with what we can live with. Hmm. And some people are going to be a little bit more on the, on the side of, of committing to doing something. Some are going to be a little bit more reserved and, and make mistakes of not intervening, right? Which are just as dangerous, by the way. Right. Um, and I think as long as you can live along the lines that I tend towards this bias, I think that we're all better able to preserve our own psychiatric health. And that's not really an answer. It's just a, a, a call for consistency. Um, of course that doesn't solve the problem. People who are acting in bad faith, right? That doesn't solve that problem. Right.
0: Well, um, Dr. Wang, you, you know, I could sit here and talk to you all day. Um, this, uh, mini series and this kickoff episode with you sharing your story was obviously very instructive, uh, enjoyable for me and a great excuse for me to get to ask you some of these, uh, probing and sometimes intimate questions that we often uh, throw at our guests. So I want to thank you for having the courage to to start off this series, to share that story and to, you know, dig into it with me and with our listeners to try, as we said, to get some of that wisdom that it's uh, given you throughout your career and, and hopefully inform those of us who are starting down the road. Thank you, JP. disclaimer time the opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself Dr. Wang and our guests they do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization this show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification it's just a show everybody